The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 136 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in again with us this week. Before we get into this week's conversation, we want to thank a new reviewer on Apple Podcasts, uh, Ja Groves, or J.A. Groves. Such kind words you left. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, This week on the show, my guest, Monique Barish, is a new author, and we were connected through Brad McBride, who is a past guest. I love Brad. Who doesn't love Brad? Brad is the best. And Monique has such a gripping and impressive life story and her conversion. It's just incredible. It's coming out in a new book. I do want to uh, give you a heads up if you're listening maybe with children around or anyone who might be sensitive. While we don't go into any detail, uh, Monique's life story does deal with some difficult topics, so parental discretion is recommended. But it's a fantastic conversation. You will love Monique. And coming up this week in My Latter-day Life, Are We Not All Beggars? It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And for regular listeners to the show, you know how much we love a good conversion story. And our guest today has written a new book, a memoir of her conversion story, Monique Barish. Welcome to the show. Hello. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited because, Monique, we really don't know each other. I don't know your story, and I always love it. I get lost in it when I can hear it for the first time. Uh, tell us uh, tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Um, so that's that's kind of like a, a great story in and of itself. Um, I'm from New Jersey. I'm not from the nice part of New Jersey. Um, certainly not from an area where you would uh, ever you know, drive around with your car doors unlocked and ask for directions. Um, so yeah, Perth Amboy, actually, I grew up, uh, basically underneath the Staten Island bridge with, uh, yeah, yeah, it was just not a great area. (laughs) And this was, uh, in the what mid late seventies. Yeah. So late seventies, early eighties, uh, Mm. gone through a little gentrification since then. And it looks a little nicer now, but I was there recently and it's not really any better of a neighborhood 40 years later. And it still, still hasn't really improved much. Did you see a lot of crime, a lot of things going on? Yeah. Um, it was, I, I lived in a very unsafe area. We had a lot of drug dealers, um, a lot of just, it, it just wasn't a safe place to be. Like I wasn't really allowed to just go out and play. Um, I was restricted basically just to our house in our backyard. Um, and even there, there was still like, there, you could constantly hear things in the background that I wasn't supposed to be listening to. Although most of it was in Spanish because I grew up in an all Hispanic neighborhood. What does that do for you as a child? Like did that normalize it or did that, did you live in fear or was it a balance? I didn't know anything different. So it, it was normal for me. Um, you know, I, I, we shopped at the corner store and we bought all of their food. So like, it was just, it was just a part of life. So I didn't really know that there was anything abnormal about it. I did know that we were different because we were Polish and it used to be a Polish neighborhood, like back in the fifties and forties. Um, Mm. and then there was this movement from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. And there was a large influx of, of that culture that came in. And so, um, we were just kind of like the holdovers from what used to be there because it used to be this all Polish speaking neighborhood. And now it was all a Hispanic speaking neighborhood. So I did know that we were different but yeah, that was about it. And in your school, were, was it a, a predominantly Latino school? So I went to Catholic school, mm. and it was it it was actually a mix, a real even mix between Hispanic and Polish kids. Uh, gotcha. They did classes, uh, you know, back east, there's this there's this weird culture of 
you're either Catholic or you're Jewish. There really, nothing else really exists. <laughs> and, and so every holiday that is Jewish, we celebrate it as Catholics and they celebrated all of our holidays too. You know, we, there was this mutual respect that happened between the Catholics and the Jews. I learned all about every Jewish holiday in my Catholic school. And we, you know, we played dreidel, we did, we lit the menorah, we did all those things. Um, so it was it was a really interesting cultural phenomenon. We had mm. matzah soup and and things like that on our menus for the for the school. So I think that's so great, so neat. Tell us a little bit about your family. So my dad, um, my dad is schizophrenic, and he had he has struggled all of his life with it, and he is somewhat maintained on medication, but not really well. Um, and mm. so it's it was a real struggle for him. He has a lot of fixed delusional thinking. Uh, he also has a lot of like paranoia, and he he definitely does some internal responding to stimulus that isn't actually there. In other words, he like talks out loud to people that aren't there. Um, and so he was, you know, I lived with him, and I lived with my mother. Uh, my mother is not schizophrenic. She's more along the depressed, aloof autistic mm. end of things. And, um, and she, she was very removed from everything. Um, and my father could be very verbally abusive to, mm. to everyone. So it was the worse he got, the more reserved she got. And so she just kind of was this figure in my life that, um, kind of just faded in the background and didn't really do a whole lot. That's a heavy burden for a kid. How how aware were you of these traits uh, of your parents when you were younger? Uh, I mean, people told me that my dad had problems, but I didn't really, you know, I didn't really know or re- have a firm grasp or understanding of that until I was well into adulthood. Uh, you know, even as an adult, I don't think I fully grasped how challenging my dad's situation was until I, I went to school and became, you know, went to school for psychology and became a nurse and, and became a psych nurse and started dealing with it every day in my job. And then I started to realize exactly how sick my father was. Um, to me, he was always just my dad and that's yeah. how dad is. And, you know, and, and so I knew that there were things like he and I don't have a really good, good relationship. There's a lot of things that I can't talk to him about or tell him about. Um, but at the same time, he was the real loving connection that I had growing up. So mm. it, it was it was a very it was a very difficult situation to navigate. I can't even imagine. And you know, I mean, we've we've heard this from past guests that when you say how was it growing up, it's as opposed to what it's the only growing up that you have. It's not like you get to compare it to, you know, a different growing up. It's it's what you lived through. Right. Um, do you have siblings? I do not. Um, I have. Uh, I, I grew up as an only child, um, and I. I think that's probably for the best. I, I wouldn't have wished any of the things that I had to experience on anybody else that was coming to this planet. So, growing up uh, in that type of area and everything that uh, that that you went through, t- tell us just a little bit about life, like summertime. You're a kid. You're, I mean, you're mainly in your backyard. Did you have friends over? Did you, I mean, did you ever get out into the neighborhood and play or? Um, so I didn't, I really truly didn't play in the neighborhood very much. Um, I only ever played in my yard, but my parents got divorced when I was three. And so Mm. I spent a lot of my time split up between my dad and, and my mom. And my mom is, she's a little bit of a, of a, a, a whimsy when it comes to, having ideas. And she just, she, she kind of just makes her plans based on what she emotionally is drawn to at the time. So she's not very planful um, about her decisions. And so she moved a lot, a lot, a lot. And so I was constantly moving schools. Um, And so between my mom and my dad, on my mom's side, I got to do more of the outdoors things because she wanted to live in safer areas. So we would go to, you know, places where there were like we would go camping and we would go, you know, to areas where we could go out and go to the beach and, and go walking and stuff like that. So there, I, I got, I did get some of that in, but our main place where we lived was in the projects. 
Um, we would just, you know, we would take day trips, <clears throat> excuse me, day trips to where it was nice and then come back home to the projects. So you're growing up, you're going to all of these different schools, you get into high school, what was high school like for you? Well, there, a lot happened between that and, and high school. I actually went to high school in Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> Whoa, so, I did not see that coming. So you, you've missed quite the leap there. Um, All right, let's go back. <laughs> so my mother got remarried and, um, and he, in, a, in a tragic accident, he was killed. And my mother decided to up and move to New Mexico so that we could be closer to some friends that were mutual friends of of her husband's and, and hers uh, as a support system. And so I trekked out to New Mexico with her on my the very, very tail end of my seventh grade year of middle school. Do you remember how you felt when your mom told you you were moving to New Mexico? Oh, I felt I, w- I did not want to go. <laughs> I was very angry with my mother for making me move out there. I was angry with her pretty much the entire time that we lived there. Uh, and I just, I didn't want to be there. I, I didn't want to be there pretty much the entire time that we lived there. All I think she ended up moving in 95. So we lived there for probably about six years, six-ish mm. years. Um, and I, I, I was, I loved grass and green and lush trees and seasons, and I was not a fan of heat. Um, and we had to, we had to suffer <laughs> through all of those things. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, I was not I've, a happy I've spent, family. I've spent a fair amount of time in New Mexico, but I've spent a ton of time in New Jersey, and there is a special New York, New Jersey thing that uh, does not automatically lend itself elsewhere. So if you grew up with that, uh, I would say it's a positive thing for my friends in New Jersey. You know, that's a huge shift. It was. It was a very huge culture shift. And, it, you know, it's so funny because even today, even though I've lived out West now since seventh grade, essentially, um, I, I still find myself running into cultural differences between myself and others. They misunderstand me because I, I talk a little fast. I, I'm very purposeful. I move fast and I'm yeah. like a little bit more driven than most people out here. They're, they kind of do things a little bit more slowly. So they, they take that almost as like an anxious energy. And I'm like, mm. well, I'm not anxious at all. <laughs> I'm totally no, I'm chill. just from the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> so did your dad stay in the East Coast then? My dad did stay on the East Coast, and the arrangement that we made is that I would spend every summer out there and every other Christmas. Um, I would either go for Christmas or I would go like just after Christmas. And so I, mm. I was still there a lot. I just flew back and forth. And I did all that flying by myself because my mom didn't travel with me. So she just plopped me on a plane when I was 13 and said, good luck. Hope you get to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Monique, this is this is starting to really paint a picture of your life growing up. My goodness. And uh and so what what came next then? So you you stayed in in New Mexico for high school. I did. I stayed in New Mexico for high school, but I my my mother remarried after after the death of her husband and um he was not a good man. He was very physically abusive to to oh. me um, and verbally and, and emotionally abusive to myself and my mother. It was a really bad situation. So it, it got to the point where I, I couldn't be there for my own safety. And so I became homeless at about the age of 14, 15. I just kind of took to friends and stayed at whoever essentially would take me in. At the age of 14 or 15, did did your mom try to have you come back? She did. Um, when I, when I, I stayed with my aunt for a while because eventually she kind of convinced certain members of, of her side of the family to come out there uh, one by one, and so they kind of trickled over that six-year period into New Mexico as well. And so I stayed with an aunt, but her and I didn't really get along. And I think that she was kind of at the end of her rope, my aunt, uh, and was like, "You need to take her back." And I didn't really have any other place to go. And so mm. I did go back for a time, um, but it, it was it got bad again quick. And so I just basically would find a friend that would take me in, and I would just live with that friend for until their parents got sick of me being there, or you know expected me to pay them or something like that. And then I would I would just find another friend, and that's just kind of how I lived for several years. And when it, things got really bad, and I just couldn't find any place to go, I would go home. Um, but it was kind of few and far between for a lot of years. 
and, oh until, until he decided, my stepfather decided to get really physical with my mother and then she kicked him out. And mm. once she kicked him out, I moved back home. I was about 17 and I was able to stay home until I was, until I was about 18 um, and so, yeah, I was able to stay there for that last like few, like year and a half of high school. But other than that, I just lived with boyfriends, friends, whoever would take me in. Were you, you know, it, it, this type of situation in a lot of kids will create rebellion. They'll get a certain street toughness, maybe get into some bad stuff uh, while while being a teenager, kind of as a natural reaction to their own situation. Was that you or were you more just focused on just staying alive at that point? Um, no, that was me. I mean, the, the, my number one coping skill that I picked up was drinking and I started drinking when I was 14. Um, Mm. and I, I drank pretty regularly and even, even at school, I would hide it and I would drink even at school. Um, but I, I was still able, you know, I was totally functional. I was still able to pass all my classes. I was still able to graduate. I, my grades didn't suffer, you know, and, and I, you know, that's kind of how alcoholics are. As long as everything's going fine, then your drinking isn't a problem until it becomes a problem, <laughs> which it did later on in life. Several years down the road, it became a problem. But at, at the high school level, it wasn't yet a problem. Did you feel anger towards your parents or how did you feel? Um, I mean, yeah, of course, every, I think every teenager feels anger towards their parents. (laughs) That's actually a good point. (laughs) I can't really claim that I felt any more anger than anyone else did. I, my whole thing was I learned at a very early age that it was better to feel nothing. And that was Mm. always my goal. I strived to feel nothing and alcohol really helped me do that. That's what I was going to say. That kind of explains alcohol as a numbing agent, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. So you graduate from high school. Uh, what came next? I was the first person in my mother's side of the family to graduate from high school. Um, wow. So I, before I graduated from high school, I needed, I needed an out. I didn't have anywhere to go. Um, I, I knew I wanted to go to college but I only had like a vague idea of where I really didn't know. I had no plan. So I married a man in the military and that became my plan. Oh my gosh. (laughs) How old were you when you got married? I, it was two weeks after my 18th birthday so that I didn't have to have permission. We planned Mm. it that way. And how long had you dated this man? Um, well, he was since he was in the military, he w- lived in Oklahoma. He was stationed in Fort Sill, and I was still in New Mexico. We actually met at a place that I was working. Um, I was I bust tables at a uh, at a bar, and his parents came in there frequently. And he was on leave once, and and that's how we met. His parents introduced us. I was just barely eighteen. I had not yet graduated high school. I was married before I graduated high school. And so that once I was, I, I eloped, I didn't tell my folks. I didn't, I don't think I told my mom that I was married until about, I don't know, three, maybe four weeks or so after I was already married. Um, and she didn't really have much to say about it. They were already on their way moving up to Montana. My stepfather had come back at this point and, and uh, had apologized. And so they were, they were on their way up to Montana to have a different life. And I was off to have my own. So did you end up moving to Oklahoma then? I did. I moved to Oklahoma and we were married for about six months before they shipped him off to Korea. And I was not allowed to go with him because it was a hardship tour. So we had all of six months before that. So then I just took off to Montana and decided that I would live um, with my folks outside of their place. They had like a little fifth wheel trailer. So like not in their home, but like off to the side. And so I kind of did that and got a job waitressing and cooking uh, and just did that for money until he came back and got myself into a lot of trouble in the meantime. When you say you got yourself into a lot of trouble, what uh, what kind of trouble? So I still wasn't 21, but I was still drinking. So a lot of sneaking into bars and doing things that I shouldn't be doing as an, as an 18, 19-year-old. Um, and then made friends that 
uh, hooked me up into a little bit harder things like more drugs and uh, a little bit harder alcohol, not just beer and wine coolers, all these wonderful things at the time, they seemed wonderful that were introduced to me that helped me numb out everything that was happening. Um, and all of my insecurities and, and coping skills that I lacked kind of came through when I was on my own. I didn't really have any kind of moral compass. I didn't have any direction. Um, I vaguely had an idea of things that were right and wrong, but I didn't really know how to make that, how to live that life. So I didn't have, I didn't really have an option to make good choices. And so I was very promiscuous and, uh, didn't really care if they were married or not, or in a relationship or that I was married, you know, he wasn't there to be with me. So then that, and somehow in my mind didn't count. Um, so yeah, just a lot of really poor decisions. Did, did you struggle at that time with being alone? Yeah. I mean, I struggled, I struggled the whole time being alone. I, I didn't really learn how to be happy and alone until, until like my early twenties. So at that point in time in my life, um, I, I had no idea how to feel or have affection or love. It just was this, it was this pie in the sky concept for me that I had never mm. really experienced. Um, and so I didn't, I just really didn't have any direction. How long was your husband gone? Um, 18 months. And as soon as he came back, we divorced. It was probably the quickest divorce in the history of Montana. It was, it literally took us five minutes to divorce and, and we had no disputes whatsoever. He asked me to take my maiden name back, which I did. And we had one credit, credit card, which we shared and paid that off. And I got my name off of it and he took it. And that was the end of that. That was our only assets that we had together. So you were essentially married for six months. I mean, in reality. Right. Cause he was gone. My for the rest gosh. Of it. And so you were then, you had gone, did you go back to Oklahoma when he came back? No, he came or did up you to stay Montana. Montana. He actually came up to Montana to, to see okay. me. And so we got divorced in Montana. And then after that, I had, I had made so many poor choices in Montana that I decided that I would, I couldn't be there anymore. And that became kind of my, how I would live my life for a while. You know, I would screw things up and then end up in a situation where I'm like, okay, well, I burned every single bridge that I have here. I guess it's time to move someplace else. And so I decided to move mm. to Alaska and go to college. Whoa. Why Alaska? I had always wanted to go ever since I was a little kid. It was something that always fascinated me and, um, and something about the, the wilderness, the absolute disconnect to everyone and anything that I knew was very appealing to me at the time. And Interesting. I, I needed to kind of prove to myself that I could just be on my own and make it. Well, Alaska's um, a place to do that. And so that's what I did. I drove up the Alcan by myself. <laughs> actually, I actually drove the Alcan nine times by myself, 12 times total. Um, but yeah, I, I drove up the Alcan and planted myself in Anchorage and finished my, my bachelor's degree in psychology, continuing on with my, with my uh, addictions and growing ever deeper. So, Did you know that you had an addiction by that point? I did not. I didn't really make the connection about the addiction until, until right before I ended up joining the church. Mm, um, gotcha. I, I look, I still leaned on it excessively as, um, as a coping skill and as like, I, I didn't really understand how to have fun without it. It was kind mm. of like, it was just this way that we socialized. It was the way that we, you know, processed through things. It was the way that we didn't process through things. And it, it was literally how we coped with every aspect, stress, you know, relationships, making friends. It was intertwined in everything that we did. Do you think you studied psychology because of your experiences growing up with your parents? I, I did mean, that draw you to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I always, I mean, I, by that point, I knew that my dad had been, that my dad was schizophrenic, but I didn't really understand. I mean, I didn't quite grasp it in the way that I grasp it now. 
I was more fascinated with trying to figure the world out and how I was going to be able to fit in it because I really didn't seem to fit anywhere and I couldn't figure out where I belonged. And I thought Mm. maybe if I understood people, I would be able to fit in better. And so that was really kind of what drew me to psychology. That and I and I felt like I I truly felt like I could help people. Like I had like a especially children. I was I worked in while I was in Alaska. I worked with children, um, and I saw some of their upbringing. And that was actually what really cued me in that my upbringing wasn't normal. I would read their histories and I'd be like, what? Why are you here? My upbringing was way worse. Or, you know, or, oh, I identify because, you know, I went through the same thing. But here these kids were in treatment, um, you know, having major psychological issues. And somehow I'm considered well, because I'm on the other end of that spectrum and I'm being paid to be here, whereas they were patients there. So like, it was this whole process of me kind of figuring out, okay, I, I did not grow up in a normal home. And then at the same time as I was trying to teach these kids coping skills and how to fix some of their some of the ways that they were thinking about the world, I was learning those too. It was like just oh. as much a lesson for me as it was for them. Monique, this is heartbreaking. I mean, I'm your story is just absolutely heartbreaking. So you finished school in Alaska. What came next? Um, so after I finished school, I didn't really have anything. I was kind of, it was kind of a dead end for me. I didn't really have anything else going on in Alaska. Um, and so I, you know, me being me, I just chased the next man in my life and kind of just floated around to whatever looked interesting next. And I ended up in Arizona. Um, I Mm. moved to Ahwatukee and, um, and worked at another. Where, where is that in Arizona? So Ahwatukee's like it's west of Mesa, like on the other side of uh, I-10. So you moved to Arizona for a guy? Yeah, and that didn't work out. <laughs> but I did work. I worked at a, a sex offender treatment facility, a locked uh, sex offender facility. Um, and so within that, my time there, I that was when I met my first friend that was a member of the church. Mm, and he was so different from anybody that I had ever met before. Like he didn't drink, he didn't go out and do like all of these things that I was going out and doing that were like completely normal to me. Like this is how everybody lived. Literally everyone I knew lived this way except for this guy. And I couldn't Mm. figure out his deal. Like I just didn't understand him, but there was something about him that drew me to him. And not like at first I thought it was that I was attracted to him. But what I didn't understand is that there was just this light about him that I didn't, I just couldn't comprehend it. Mm. I didn't understand why he was so happy. And there was, I can't even tell you how many conversations we had where I was like, I do not understand you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you don't date. And then he would argue with me. I do date. I'm like, okay, going out to the skate park with five other people is not dating. That's just (laughs) hanging out. (laughs) Oh, that's great, Monique. And so that was kind of my introduction to the church. He he gave me it's I I I have told this story before. He he gave me uh, a copy of the Book of Mormon because I asked him a couple of times. And you know, in I was very dysfunctional and I I did a lot of really really bad things in my dysfunction. And one of the things that I was really bad at was I was I was a really bad manipulator. And so, you know, we started talking about religion and I saw that it like it really brightened him up. Like he all of a sudden he opened up and started talking to me and sharing with me about things that he had never shared before. And there was like this depth that I had never experienced with him before. And of course, me in my manipulative mind thought, oh, if I pretend to really, you know, be into this whole Latter-day Saint gig. I'll be able to spend more time with him and get him to open up with me more and I can manipulate him to get me to, to get him to like me this way. And so that was my whole motivation for accepting and reading the Book of Mormon. <laughs> not exactly, <laughs> not exactly your righteous. Um, not because wanting. you lack wisdom. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I start. I read the Book of Mormon and I didn't understand any of it at all. The first time that we talked about it, he was like, so what did you think about, you know, the, the story with the Native Americans? And I was like, there's Native Americans in this book? 
So that was how much of that I understood. It, it flew over my head like a 747. I, I mean, I did read it. I, I legitimately did read it, but I, I didn't, I definitely didn't understand it, nor was I ready to understand it when I read it. Um, and so funny story, he actually later on down the road, uh, several months later, handed me a different book. And <laughs> that book was The Miracle of Forgiveness, which most people in the church kind of balk at. And they're like, oh, my goodness, that, that book, it's so harsh. And, you know, and all these things. That was actually the book that converted me. It is one of my favorite books of all time. And at one of the lowest points in my life, I read that book and it changed how I looked at everything. So I am a big fan of that book, even though I know there are a lot of people who aren't necessarily. Well, it was, it was hilarious as he was giving as like, he was so hesitant to hand the book over and he like kept hedging everything that he said. He was hedging everything. He's like, I don't really, this isn't something that I would normally do. And, and I don't, you know, a lot of people don't like this book and I don't, you know, all of these hedging things. And he, I'm finally, I'm just like, just give me the book. <laughs> I'll read it. Just give it to me. <laughs> and that was, that ended up being the book that changed everything. And from that point forward, I read everything. I read all of the scriptures, um, literally every work that I could get my hand on, hands on. And I, I pretty much, it was it hit the ground running from there. And there was, it was no longer a focus about him. It was about learning how to be happy and how to have joy and how to fill this hole in my heart that never filled, no matter how much I drank or who I was sleeping with. It, it never filled up. And I finally found an answer to that. I mean, that must have been so foreign that here is the opposite of everything you've done and you're finding peace in it. Yeah, I mean, it, it truly was. And, it, and, you know, I have to tell you, it wasn't... It wasn't like an instant thing where I suddenly learned how to be, you know, how to live that life. I made mistakes. I relapsed. I did have a relapse um, into into drinking. Uh, lucky for me, I, it was only one relapse. And, you know, I mean, I know people, I know alcoholics yeah. that relapse 20, 30, 40, 50 times. Sure. Uh, and they, you know, they, they're lucky if they can get a couple years of sobriety. I, I had about two and a half years of sobriety before I relapsed after I joined the church. Mm. Um, and then I, I didn't relapse for long, though. I, I, I drank for about eight months, and then I gave it up again, and I haven't touched it since. I'm going on – going this November will be 16 years since I've had a drink. With everything you know, leading up to your conversion to the church, you've taken this what, – what inspired you to turn this into a book? Brad McBride inspired me to turn this into a book. You know, I, I for I joined Facebook, I don't know, a million years ago, and it back in uh, oh, I think maybe two thousand seven, two thousand eight, or something like that. I actually found him quite quickly on Facebook, and we became friends. And over the years, I would tell stories on Facebook. I have this little thing I do called Story Time, where I tell a little tidbit about my life. And so, you know, we, he and I had been friends for many, many years, and he had heard so many of these little tidbits of stories. Here we are sitting in a, at a writer's conference one day, and, and we happened to be in a memoir class because he that's kind of his gig. He writes memoir as well. And he just kind of pushed his elbow into me, and he was like, you need to write a memoir. And I'm like, why would I do that? Who wants to know about my life? Um, and he's like, you have a lot of interesting stories. You need to write your memoir. And so I was like, okay. And so I embarked on this journey. And it was probably one of the most painful journeys that I've been on. It was truly an, an, uh, an eye-opening experience for me. I healed wounds I didn't know I had. I opened up relationships that had been closed for many, many years. I had an understanding of, of, of and an acceptance of why I needed to let some relationships go, even though most people would probably look at that and be like, wow, that's, you know, that's pretty, th that wouldn't be something that they would feel comfortable with. Um, but why it was healthy for me. Um, so there was, there was so many things that helped me just kind of understand and come to myself just from the process of writing the memoir um, that I really, I, I actually felt, um, I felt like I had to to dedicate the book to him because I never would have gone through that process had he not encouraged me and and pushed me to do it. And I want to remind our listeners if the name Brad McBride sounds familiar, he was a guest on the show. His blog is called 
Thus, we see he, he to me, he will always be the middle-aged Mormon man, <laughs> but uh, one of the most fantastic people we know. And how did you end up meeting Brad? Via the blog, just like everybody else meets Brad. <laughs> yeah, and he's he, amazing. He was he has this ability to create community um, online that was pretty unprecedented at the time. And there was a whole group of us, actually, that became in real life friends, him being one of my friends. Um, but, you know, I moved to Utah because of some of these people. So it's, you know, it, 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 he really had a profound effect on a lot of people. Yeah, he, he has changed so many lives. And I just I love Brad. Good man. Um, so what is the what is the book called? The book is called More, a memoir. Um, and it's it, it truly is my search for how to have more and knowing that you know, having some inclination that there is more out there and that I should be searching for it until I find it. Were there things that were hard to share that you ultimately did end up sharing? Uh, yes. And I didn't share any of them in the interview and I don't plan on it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to ask you for them. I do want to save that for the book. And, you know, our our 99% of our audience is Latter-day Saint. You know, you went through a lot of really rough, crazy things. How much detail should people expect as far as if they're sensitive to those types of things? Yes. So I, I, I tried to write the book as true to form as it actually happened. However, I also was sensitive to the fact that people don't need to have details. So I tried to be cognizant of not offending. There are, however, there is some bad language in the book. I tried to be mindful of the use of the bad language. And if it's in there, it's generally in there with a purpose. Gotcha. To to show, uh, like to show a a very extreme emotion or to show a a personality trait or characteristic of someone. Um, Like in those sense, I, I didn't just gratuitously sprinkle it in there. If it's in there, it's in there with thought. Um, gotcha. And as far as the as some of the other things, I was I tried to be very careful about not being too graphic with my explanations yeah. of some of the things that occurred. Um, but it but there are adult situations. Um, there there is a lot of sex in it, but not in a not in a graphically explained way. Definitely in a in a PG thirteen fade to black way. And this leads to how your book ended up being published. Uh, because you were in a little bit of a quandary. It was uh, a little bit, uh, you know, intense of a story for a traditional sort of Latter-day Saint publisher uh, because of everything you went through, but a little bit too Latter-day Saint for Christian publishers. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, pretty much as as a Latter-day Saint, you're automatically excluded from every Christian publisher. It doesn't matter what you're writing about. If they find out that you're a Latter-day Saint, you're done. You don't you do not write for them anymore. So that, that was automatically off the table. But, you know, the other piece of that too, is that once you start writing about religion and conversion, that pretty much excludes you from every big New York house that's out there. Um, and then that leaves you with your Latter-day Saint publishing. And although I did have some publishers, some Latter-day Saint publishers that held on to it for a really long time, they really, really, really wanted to make it work. But at the end of the day, they, they just made the decision that they had to take too much of the story out and it lost its power. So they, they returned it back to me with, with a no. And so here I was with this book and I'm like, okay, I guess my only option now is to self-publish. And I had no idea how to do that. Um, but luckily, this is where my friendship with Brad came in. Again, um, he he had seen, you know, he was with me through this whole process. And so he has seen this actually several times where he's seen people go out and try to get things published that were worthy of being published, but just couldn't find the right publisher to publish it. So he decided he was, he was done with all of that and started up his own publishing company, Adept Media, and he's going to be launching that here shortly. Um, and so he's my publisher. Um, and he, he's going to, I think he calls it a, a boutique publishing company. So he has a really narrow focus. It's going to be LDS authors. They're all going to be inspirational stories. You know, one of the things that we see a lot, um, we ha- there's been a lot of memoirs out recently about, not maybe a lot, but there have been a few memoirs out recently about Latter-day Saints that become estranged from the church and they're and it's their journey away from the church. But so 
rare is it to have the opposite and to have somebody finding themselves in the church. And Brad really felt that that was important to, that we portray that piece of it as well. Oh, I just love it. What a journey you've been on, Monique. I mean, it's an amazing story. If we have listeners who, you know, I, I think, and this is one thing I've learned doing a podcast for a few years now, I think everybody has a story and a lot of people don't realize it. Yours is very obvious. <laughs> I mean, yours is unique and different, but I think everybody has a story. What advice do you have for people who have thought about uh, writing their life story? Start it, write it, and then research how, after you get it out of you, then research how to do it right um, so that you can so that you can make it the story that it needs to be. If you have an interest in writing at all, there is a huge community of Latter-day Saint writers that are just willing to envelop you and teach you how to do it and get it published. Um, that's that's how I learned. I started out not knowing anything um, and, and learned through help in the Latter-day Saint community of writers that multiple, there's actually multiple different um, organizations that that can help you in any in any way that you need helping. If it's just learning how to write how to write itself and learning the craft, or if it's learning how to get published, or learning how to market once you are published, or just even getting established, all of that is available. Oh, it's fantastic, and of course, you know you're in with one of the best with Brad. That's awesome. To kind of put a bookend on. Uh, where things are now, you are working, you work as a psych nurse, is that I, right? I do. I'm a psychiatric nurse and, and I do that um, full time um, and I love it. I absolutely love my job. I am, um, I'm in charge of, uh, of a mood unit in, in a psychiatric hospital mm. and um, I see a lot of patients that come in with um, issues like addictions and um, you know various different aspects of their life and how they've how they've been just struggling through. And, you know, suicide is a real problem here in, in the Valley and being able to help somebody through that time and offer them some hope and some skills that they can use to change the way that they think about things is one of the most rewarding aspects of, of having been through what I've been through. Are you able to apply that? Are you able to see, see people maybe differently than I could? I, 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 I don't know exactly how to answer that. I feel like I want to say yes, because I don't judge. I assume you yet. do, by the way. I'm guessing you do, because I, I, you know, I can have a different, you have, you have a sympathy and an empathy that I, that I can't. Yeah. I, you know, I don't I, judge anyone. I, 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 who am I to judge? I've done some pretty horrific things um, in my days. So if I could come out of that and become a better person, I have, I just can't, I can't judge someone and say that they can't because I, I did horrible things too, but I'm not that horrible person anymore. No. And, and everybody has that opportunity. I mean, that's what the atonement offers us is that opportunity to be like, you know what? I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to be a different person and I want to grow. And that's, you know, I, I would, I would feel horrible if I judged somebody and took that away from them. I would much rather give them the hope that they can change than to, to be a judging person and, you know, put them in a box and say, you're just this type of person and that's all you'll, you'll ever be. If people are interested in finding the book? I have a webpage. It's moniquebearish.com. Um, that's my first and last name, dot com. That's B-E-R-I-S-H? Yes. Awesome. So if they go to moniquebearish.com and they can pre-order the book? Pre-order until May 15th is when it fully launches, and then you'll just be able to buy it directly as well. Uh, that is fantastic. Well, it's wonderful that you have taken the time to write it and to tell your story. And I'm excited to hear part two. My part two actually goes back in time, and it's going to be I, I the next book that I'm actually working on is it's my mom and my grandmother's story, which is just as fascinating and interesting because my mother did not get the way that she is just by chance. So I cannot wait. We'll have you back on, and 
We'll uh, we'll have to hear about it for sure. Monique, this has been so inspiring. I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. I don't think I prepped you for how we end each of our episodes, but uh, we end every episode with the same question. What does being a member of the church mean to you? It means everything to me. There's no other answer for that. I wouldn't be who I am without it. She is a new author, which I'm so excited about. Uh, that her book is coming out. Monique Barish, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And my special thanks to my guest, Monique Barish, for coming on and telling us her story and uh, for publishing the book that just shows what uh, redemptive powers the atonement of Jesus Christ has. I have not uh, read the book, but I do want to remind the audience, as Monique said, there is some language and obviously some adult situations uh, that are covered in that book. We wanted to make sure that that was very clear. But Monique, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your incredible story. And thank you to Brad, my my dear friend Brad McBride, for uh, connecting me with Monique This week in my Latter-day life, I had a really neat faith-affirming experience. Many years ago, uh, when I was working comedy clubs as a stand-up comedian, I became friends with another local comic, and he was just such a nice guy, always very supportive of me, and uh, I haven't seen him, gosh, I probably literally have not seen him in 20 years. He ended up moving to Las Vegas and is working down there as a comedian, and uh, we've stayed in touch over the years on Facebook. And you can imagine in this time of COVID-19 what uh, what it's done to live performers. As, As you know from the show, if you've listened for a while, a lot of my friends are comedians, they're DJs, they're speakers, presenters, and this has wiped everything out, you know, without, uh, live performance, they don't make any money at all. And so I logged into Facebook and saw a post that uh, this friend of mine had just posted. And again, I, I haven't seen him in more than 20 years, but he posted this this very, very sad post that said, uh, friends, I am so embarrassed and so ashamed to post this. But unfortunately, with everything happening, and my life has just been a mess, uh, I am out of money, and I am about to lose my place to stay. And I literally am about to be homeless and completely broke. And he said, I didn't want to post this. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. But if there's any way any of you can help me out at all, I would greatly appreciate it. And he shared uh, below his his Venmo how to how to help him, and I was so touched I could hear how broken he was, and so I immediately grabbed my phone and and sent him some money via Venmo uh, to try to help him out, and he sent back the most wonderful thank you to me, and he seemed so touched. He said, "You know, we haven't seen each other for so long." And he said, I'm just so grateful. That was so kind of you. And it wasn't, you know, a ton of money. I just wanted to help out an old friend. And as we exchanged messages back and forth, uh, and he mentioned, you know, I can't believe you did this when we haven't seen each other. We're not particularly close friends. But I replied back and said, you know, I'm a man of faith. And my favorite scripture in the world is found in the Book of Mormon. And I said, it starts out, are we not all beggars? And it talks about how we all rely on that same God. And I said to my friend, you know, today it's you and tomorrow it could be me. And the truth of the matter is, in the past it has been me. And I have found myself at times where I have needed to lean on the kindness of strangers. Where I was the beggar, I was in need. And every day I'm the beggar when I fall down on my knees and I ask Heavenly Father for what I need. None of us, none of us stand alone. And what was neat was uh, it just felt good to help somebody. But uh, either, either later that night or the next day, I logged into Facebook and his post was there. And there were many comments underneath. And I had messaged him and said, do you have enough now? And this was hours after I had sent him money. I said, do you have enough? 
And he said, thanks to the goodness of my friends and the goodness of God, I'm okay now. And that was what I needed to hear. And then I started reading through the comments from his friends. And it was so inspiring to see his friends pitch in, hey, I just sent you 10 bucks or 20 bucks. It's all I've got. It's all I can give up right now. And there was a particularly touching comment from a friend of his who said, you know that I am a single mom of three and I'm not employed right now. I so wish that I could send you something, but I am sending my prayers and my goodwill your way and just hoping that you're well. Another friend of his said, hey man, I've got an extra bedroom. It's nothing fancy, but why don't you come stay with me for a few weeks? And on and on as people stood to help out our friend. It was so inspiring. I think sometimes it's very easy for us to look at the world and go, oh, the world is such a tough place or, you know, even an evil place or whatever. But on a micro level, people are good. And I think it's because we all know that we are all beggars. We do all rely on that same God for everything that we have. And once again, today it was him, tomorrow it could be me, or it could be you, and that's why we have to be there to help each other out, because that is, that's what it comes down to when I pray for a friend. God has given me tools that I can help out, and you too, and all of us. I'm just so grateful for experiences like that. I'm grateful for a God who hears my cries, and who puts me in places to help others, and who puts others in places to help me. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. We sure appreciate it. Uh, You know, we can be found on Facebook and Instagram if you want to see uh, upcoming guests. Everything is right there. If you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. If you get a moment and could leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, On Apple Podcasts, we actually, between ratings and reviews, we are now up to over 300 ratings and reviews, and we are so grateful for that. We still have maintained a five out of five stars average. So thank you so much for all that support. And of course, if there's someone you know who may enjoy this podcast, if you could share it with them, Gosh, that would just mean the world to us. We have such inspiring guests on here. Well, that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 